Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi there, and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Before we dive in, we're handing it across to Carly. As a reminder, this is an unscripted podcast program and our conversations have been edited and condensed and are not a full picture of our feedback or conversation directly with each author. As always, refer to our written notes for the fulsome picture. Thank you, Carly. Right, will you kick us off with your first query letter? Dear Ms. Waters, as a big fan of Tease Not Ya and given your wish for more suspense, I am really hoping you will enjoy my novel, Title Redacted. It is about a luxury party planner who becomes obsessed with a woman she encounters in a hospital waiting room the day her twin sister dies. With the excruciating tension of Lisa Jewell's None of This is True and the dark, voicey vibes of Ashley Audrain's The Push, Title Redacted explores how grief and secrets can unravel the most perfect lives and soundest minds. Katie has always believed intentions count for a lot. Maybe that's because when she and her twin sister Dana were growing up, their mom was always saying things like, oh, she didn't mean it that way. So even though Katie hasn't always followed the rules, the important thing is that she always meant well, right? 
It's gotten her this far after all. She has a successful luxury party planning business, the husband she's wanted since she was 17, the nicest house on the nicest street in Chicago's most affluent suburb. But when Katie gets a call that her twin sister has been in a serious accident and arrives at the hospital minutes too late to say goodbye, everything changes, not least of which Katie. To her family's growing concern and confusion, it's not her sister's death consuming Katie, it's Morgan, another grieving woman Katie encountered in the hospital waiting room the day her sister died. She can't get Morgan out of her head. She knows it can't be a coincidence, her and this other woman being hit with their respective tragedies at the same time in the same place. Katie doesn't believe in coincidences. Maybe if she sees the woman again just once, she'll be able to move on. But seeing Morgan again only intensifies Katie's interest or, as her husband and therapist see it, her new fixation. With each blurred line she steps over, Katie inches closer to losing everything she's worked so hard for, but she is convinced that she must somehow help the stranger overcome her own tragedy whether the woman wants her help or not, and no matter what it costs her. The story behind this story is interesting, but I can't share it with you until you finish the book. It'll ruin the fun. As for me, I'm a mother of two young children, wife of one, young at heart husband, and author of four rather disturbing novels. I have recently parted ways on excellent terms with my former agents. If title redacted sounds interesting to you, I would love to send you the 83,000 word manuscript. I pasted the first five pages below. Thank you, Marissa Waltz. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Wow. Curiosity seed within the author bio. That's probably the first time we've experienced that. Okay. So what's your take on that? All right. So it came in at 453 words. Okay. Let's get into it. So I definitely think this is a strong hook and obviously I completely agree with the comp Lisa Jewell. None of this is true. I interviewed Lisa Jewell on the podcast. And if you haven't tuned into that episode, go listen because we had a really, really great chat about the book and about thriller writing. So I definitely agree with all of that. So in terms of the title though, you wrote capital N for none of this is true, capital T for true. And then you didn't capitalize the O, the T and the I, like you didn't capitalize the first word in every part of that title. So I would just emphasize that you would do that. Okay. So the next thing I was curious about the wording. Like this felt like a very voicey query to me in a good way. This query had a lot of personality, which I really liked. There was a real just like confidence in the way this was being pitched, very much like a seasoned author who, you know, once we get to the bottom, we can see that you are or somebody who kind of understands how to write jacket copy. So I liked this. So there was a line that said the husband she's wanted since she was 17. I really wasn't clear if this is the person she's wanted since she was 17 or she wanted a husband since she was 17. I found that a little bit confusing. It's a small point, but it kind of it affects the way that it is read because is it like true love since they were kids or like, oh, she just had her heart set on this type of life. So it does it does kind of affect my read of it a little bit here. So this whole thing about being obsessed with somebody. And again, you know, the, the comp here, none of this is true. If you guys have read it, like there's a huge obsession and it's done in such a sophisticated way by Lisa Jewell that like we really see the kind of the sinking of the claws and all of that. And so that is really hard to accomplish in a query letter, of course, right? Because we're not on the page with this like simmering tension. We're trying to express all of that in a pitch. And so I guess I was having trouble understanding the why here. The book seems really to hinge on us believing the fact that she just runs into somebody in the hospital room and these people, you know, these two people's worlds collide and like they're never the same. It's kind of just like insta-love, right? It's like, 
how how are we the reader ever supposed to kind of believe that because we're how do we see it we're being told it so I, I find that like insta love or this is like I don't know insta stalking you know I find that hard to wrap my head around because I'm not seeing it on the page right I'm seeing I'm, it's being told to me so I'm, I'm interested in that I'm having a bit of a hard time getting invested and I guess I just want to be invested a little bit more another thing I'm curious about is what does this Morgan lady think about all of this right like it's obviously told through the perspective of Katie but we never get a sense of like whether Morgan even knows this is happening. Like it's all like seeing Morgan again. It's not like, again, in using our comp, right? Like none of this is true where they actually form a pseudo friendship here. It's just like, Oh, we get the sense that she's kind of stalking her. And so does Morgan actually know that there's something going on from her side of it? Again, even if it's not a multi POV, I guess I just need to know what lines are crossed because if this is a very, I would consider stalking, obviously very active but it's also a passive in a lot of ways because it is all inside of somebody's mind and so if there are things like the stalking leads to you know stealing stuff from her do you know what i'm trying to say like i'm just curious about like how this escalates and i'm not really seeing that on the page we just get the sense of katie's interiority completely unraveling and affecting her relationships which again is all in her head so it's to me this is incredibly psychological the way that it is presented so that's kind of my read on that but i really love the line you know the story behind this is interesting can't wait to share it with you until you finish the book that's really interesting awesome awesome curiosity seed there yeah so cc bianca what did you guys think just before we go to cc i just want to two things one yeah so what you said stalking passive i think it can be very passive if you're just online stalking someone right checking their socials etc but stalking becomes active if you're actually following them around and going places to see if they're there, etc. So maybe that's something that needs to be made more clear. In terms of the why, Carly, I thought that was answered in the query letter because she says it can't be a coincidence. She doesn't believe in coincidences. So to me, that's not the same as like an insta-love or running into someone and just falling in love or becoming obsessed. To her, she's seeing a causal relationship between this woman's tragedy and her own. Or am I misunderstanding that? Or is that not enough of a why? I think it's just not enough of a why to me because it just feels incredibly interior and as I said, psychological, which in the right context, all of that can work. But to me, it was just incredibly interior and incredibly psychological where it just didn't have the leverage to be able to like, you know, pull on something for me. Okay, so maybe if it isn't psychological, if the woman have a discussion about the weird coincidence of it, and maybe she suspects Morgan is hiding something, therefore it becomes less psychological and interior, and that's something she should put in the query letters. Is that right? I think so, because Morgan could be anybody. Like, to me, like, Morgan could be a refrigerator. Like, I don't know who Morgan, like, she's just a figure. She's a noun here. Like, she's just a, I don't know what, what else to say it, right? Like, she just, because we don't get her point of view, and we have no idea how she factors into this, or what their relations are. She's to me just such a figurehead and not really a character at this point. And I guess I just want her to become a character, whether she is a POV character or not. Awesome. I think that's really helpful for the author. Cece? To build on that, one thing that stood out to me is that we don't know what Morgan's tragedy was. Did she also lose her twin sister? Is that the coincidence? And so Katie is convinced that there's no way these two women lost their sisters on the same day. So really, this is fate's way of making them sisters. I don't know. Maybe that's her thought process. Or maybe it's something like it was the same accident. So like whoever Morgan lost was in the car accident with her sister. And again, Katie is convinced that this is how their lives, if their lives collided, it's because they're meant to be in each other's lives. I don't know. 
But I really wanted more and more again. I think Carly makes a really good point about how right now we don't get anything specific on her situation. And I really wanted that. And it feels like a straightforward fix. So maybe that will help the author, hopefully. Whenever I get a query letter like this, I'm always immediately drawn to it because I adored the push and I really enjoyed None of This is True. So you have great comps. You have a really fun concept. I'm absolutely obsessed with the curiosity seed in the author paragraph. Like you did such a good job with that. So really it's going to hinge on, on two things. One, the execution is going to have to be believable from a psychological perspective because of how much interiority is needed. So that's going to be all about the writing. And then two, just being a little bit more specific in the pitch. So if you go to Lisa Jewell's, none of this is true, like the pitch copy on that, there's a few things that are a bit more specific than what you're doing here now. So right now we have for your pitch with each blurred line she steps over we have is convinced that she must somehow help the stranger overcome her own tragedy no matter what it costs her notice how these are a little bit vague like what lines are we talking about help the stranger overcome what loss who did she lose and no matter what it costs her is a little vague. So with, with Lisa's book, we have mortal threat. Her family is under mortal threat. We have the fact that Josie is now in Alex's home. So we have a little bit more specificity. I don't want to give the author the impression that you need to give away the goods. Mortal threat is already enough. In her home is already enough. So there are ways to do it and not give away the goods, but just be a little bit more specific. So I would I would definitely do that. I want to put out a theory here. My author brain is running, sticking over here. And I have a theory that Morgan is the person who killed her sister. I have a theory Morgan is the one who hits her sister and Morgan's in the hospital talking vaguely about a tragedy because she doesn't want to give away that she's the one who killed the sister. And so that is why our author cannot give us these kinds of details. But then they need to mislead us in a way that makes us specifically curious as opposed to it being vague. If my theory is right, what do you guys recommend there? If the theory is right, two things. One, if it's a car accident, police would be involved and she would know Morgan was in that car. So you better come up with a plausible reason why she does not find that out. I don't want that plausibility issue. Two, Morgan should make up a story. Morgan's not going to be vague. Morgan's going to make up a fake story. Just like Josie in None of This Is True made up a fake story. I don't think this is a spoiler because it's pretty obvious that Josie is lying from the beginning, by the way. So none of this like, oh, I'm discussing loss in vague terms. No, no. Make something up and then have that be the lie that is later on uncovered. Awesome. Listen, I may be wrong, author. If I am, I'm sorry for sending us off on a tangent, but I thought that would be a pretty cool twist. Okay. Carly, what was in those opening pages? Okay, so we start with, we have kind of a, a chapter one and a chapter two that are encompassed in these five pages. So we'll get into it. So essentially chapter one is a prologue. It is our Katie protagonist kind of just watching, you know, viewing who we assume to be Morgan. She knows it's not right. She's kind of explaining like it doesn't have to be like this. And a lot of kind of commentary on the house that this person lives in and whether it's being taken care of or not. So a lot of descriptions and kind of leading up to the stalking essentially talking about you know the therapist kind of knows what's happening and the husband knows what's happening and also in that section we know that she is talking to somebody and she is talking to Dana which is the sister that has passed so that is kind of being told in a storytelling like that so I, that's why I'm calling it a prologue then we jump to the second section which is called chapter two 
And it starts with something called like the beginning, where should I begin? And so again, we're, we're kind of speaking to the reader who is essentially the sister. So we learn a little bit about the kind of twin relationship. And then we start learning about her life, basically like where she lives and her job, which we know is the luxury party planning business. And we kind of start getting into a scene where she has planned a party for a rich client and describing the huge luxurious situation, you know, champagne, opulence, fancy shoes. She talks but her owning our main character Katie owning a Birkin and kind of explaining how she's really successful at her job and that is where we end okay so from the description it sounds like a lot of exposition and sort of interiority as opposed to things happening on the page what's your take on that all right so I think I like this sneaky prologue I think it works in this context because We're setting up the stocking, which again, we know in the query letter, which presumably in the future would be on the jacket copy. So we know that this is happening. So it's not really a surprise type of prologue, but it is kind of setting the tone for the tone, right, of of the book and the voice and kind of the observation and the creepiness. So I do think it does a decent job of setting the tone. It's not a surprising prologue and again I don't think prologues should be surprising it's just it's kind of doing the job of yeah setting the tone you know she knows what she's doing is wrong she says it's not healthy Katie it's not right not normal not legal which I love that line like she knows what she's doing is wrong which I think now we're like oh is she gonna get into legal trouble with this right like our mind starts spinning as the reader and I think there's some nice writing like I think it does show off the writing here so we kind of get a sense of what is to come so yeah I left a note on here that I I do think that section works well enough for me and now we get into the kind of the beginning of the book essentially you know chapter two she calls it and she starts it with the beginning where exactly should I begin June 14th 33 years ago the day I came barreling bracket mom's words bracket out of the birth canal I struggle with this type of writing speaking directly to the reader because it feels forced right it's like I know that you're I know that you're doing this for me for the reader it's just not the way that I like to be spoken to as the reader so I struggle with this right it's like and also like going back to the beginning oh when we were born we came out of a birth canal and you know I beat you by four minutes and then she says but you already know that so let's start over and I'll tell you only what you've missed starting with last February. So I would start it with like, just I'll tell you what you've missed starting with last February, period. Because again, if this is all imaginary, we know this is all in Katie's head because we know Dana has passed, then we don't need to do this little preamble of like what you remember, what you do or do not know about our our past, right? So if we're going to keep that, that is where I would start that. So this was such an interesting sample to read because On a line level, the details were so specific and so interesting, and yet we do a lot of, you know, talking about family get-togethers and history and, you know, the relationship with the husband and so much backstory that while it shows off your writing, it doesn't actually propel the plot along at all. So there's a lot, I think, that has to go here. Ultimately, I felt there's just like an incongruence between who I imagine Katie to be and how you're presenting her on the page, because it's also psychological because you're presenting Katie's own opinion of herself as telling herself the story to Dana. Do you know what I'm trying to say? So it's quite layered here. And so, you know, there's a line that says back then nothing was too bad. In fact, things were pretty fucking great, even in February. So this seems like a really interesting swear to me because it seems slightly unhinged because she isn't mad. So she's not using the F word because she's mad. And like, is she using it because she's fired up? And what is she fired up about? 
She's saying things were normal here. So it comes off as like slightly unbalanced, slightly unhinged. Again, if you're going for unhinged, I think you're nailing it. But I'm still trying to figure out who Katie is. And and we keep getting so far away from the plot, as I said, in terms of like that history and that narrative of like telling us things that happened in the past. Now I want to get to her job. So she is a luxury party planner. And that is a really interesting job. And she presumably makes a lot of money doing this. And so she says, my phone vibrated rudely from the bottom of my Birkin. Dropping a B, a Birkin B, is a very interesting status symbol to be dropping here. That's super interesting to me. Usually people who own Birkins are super, I mean, I mean, like stratospherically rich, right? A Birkin starts at $30,000. So you are, you're owning a purse that's $30,000. She doesn't say fake or anything. It's real. Like, again, this isn't her point of view. I believe her. So I guess I would just be so curious by why is she still working if she can afford a Birkin, right? You're that rich. You know, you could just throw money on a, on a handbag whenever you want. Did you save up for this very special Birkin? Is this a hand-me-down Birkin? Are you in debt because of this Birkin? Like to me, again, I always focus on these status symbols because they're very interesting to me about why we chose this because this tells me a lot about what the character is passionate about, is interested in, how they spend their money, what they value. And so did she buy this Birkin to impress her clients? Yeah, I don't know. I just, I'm so curious about this character and I can't quite wrap my head around her, I guess. Like, is she just that passionate about her job where, you know, she gets jobs for $30,000 and she's going to turn around and drop it on a Birkin because her husband's covering the rest of the household bills. So anyway, I guess all this to say, I'm still trying to figure out who Katie is and I don't know who she is at all. I understand she is a rich woman who has a awesome job that she's like super passionate about which is great but I guess I just don't know where her head is at and because we're recounting all of this for the reader I guess I just don't trust her and this isn't being pitched really as a psychological book but I'm everything I'm gathering from the query letter and from these pages this is an incredibly psychological book I'm gonna end there thank you Carly yeah I mean she can still be working because she's passionate about her work and absolutely loves it but like you say then that needs to be clearer there. Something I just want to clear up before we go to Cece is using the second person in terms of you. So in this book, who the narrator is speaking to is her dead sister. That is the you she's speaking to, which is quite different from if a narrator is speaking to the reader and the reader is that you. And earlier you said this is not how you like to be spoken to as the reader, but she's not addressing you as a reader. She's addressing her dead sister. So can we just unpack for our listeners the difference between the use of those kinds of use? I guess the reason I was saying that is because this is all a production for me, the reader. Like all of this is orchestrated because I am consuming the novel as the reader. So I agree with you. It is not that she's speaking directly to me Katie isn't speaking to me. Katie is speaking to Dana. But the author of this book is speaking to me because I am the reader of this book, if that makes sense. Perfect sense. Thank you, Carly. Okay, Cece, let's go to you. I'll build off that and say that I love second person and I really enjoy the hybrid second person, which is what we have here. I actually had a note. Have you tried writing this in hybrid second person? And then I realized she was talking to to her sister. And I was like, oh my God, you're doing it. So I actually think that works really well. It's one of those situations where, you know, it's just taste and you can just see how subjective and I'm pretty sure frustrating this whole thing might be to someone listening. But yeah, I like it. I like the point of view. It, it works really, really well. And I would keep it. So when it comes to the prologue, I adore this prologue. It is very reminiscent of the push, which made me understand why you use that as a comp. 
And I agree with Carly that it's working really well. And I do think you should keep it. I have ideas on how to elevate a little bit if you're open. So I want to start by saying that the line, I've always imagined her living room to be where I've always imagined her living room to be. And then I can't know for sure because I've never been invited in despite those months we were what I would consider friends. Now, that is a great line. We have to talk about the curiosity seed in that line and how genius it is. I love it. So excellent, excellent job there. After that, you have these really great details, but I think it could be elevated. I think these details could be elevated by grounding them in the protagonist's mind. I'll give you examples. The house, a small brick bungalow, has the look of something kept nice out of duty, not love. My question when I read that was, is that, does that match the way she treats her friends, for example? Does she also treat her friends, because she considers them to have been friends at one point, as something to be maintained out of duty, not love? Does that match her personality? Another example is she's describing the house and we have these great descriptions, right? Like, and then I'm wondering, how is it different from her house? You really want to go for contrast when you have someone observing another person, especially observing with a degree of fixation, because human beings compare all the time. And when you obsess with someone, you compare even more. So how is this house nicer than her house? Or how is it not as nice? Or how is it just a different kind of nice? So anyway, the prologue is working really, really well. I did have a question. At one point, she references her therapist. She says, I've promised the therapist that it will. And I'm like, would she call him the therapist, not my therapist? And I wondered if it was intentional. Maybe this is the author's subtle way of showing that she doesn't consider him to be her therapist. She's just going out of obligation. Maybe her husband, you know, convinced her that she had to go and she agreed to get him off her case or something. And that's like kind of like her silent way to rebel against this therapist being like, you're not my therapist, you're the therapist. So anyway, I liked it. I would remove the explanation of she promised the therapist she would start talking to her sister. I think that that's a little bit heavy-handed. I think we will understand as the reader. I think you can trust us to get it that she's talking to her sister. When it comes to the present-day chapter, well, not present-day, when it comes to the actual chapters, not the prologue, that's where I 100% agree with what Carly said. Start later, start in February. And I don't think that the scene with the job and everything else is the best scene. Like, it's so well-written. I agree. Like, Like Carly nailed it. You're showing off your writing as you should. But at the same time, it's not the juiciest, most compelling scene. So again, this is one of those situations where we're like, yay, the prologue is fantastic. But I don't know. I would chapter one, which by the way, is something to consider when adding a prologue. If your prologue is fantastic, believe me, chapter one better be as fantastic, if not better than the prologue or else you lose people because people are like, oh, you know, I once passed on a manuscript because the prologue was absolutely fantastic and the rest wasn't. And I was like, you need to write just like the prologue. And I said this to the author. I said, if you ever write it like you wrote the prologue, send it to me again, because that's how good the prologue was. But yeah, I think the chapter one needs to be tweaked to just be more juicy, less explaining, less context. We'll get the context sprinkled in. Don't worry about it. We're smart. We readers focus on juiciness. Thank you, Cece. All right, let's go to your query letter. Will you read that for us, please? Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, I am a longtime listener and lover of the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast, and I'm excited to submit my query letter for you all to review. Thank you for all your dedication to us writers. I truly believe that the three of you have helped me in my writing career more than any other outlet thus far. We appreciate you all so much, and my gratitude cannot be stressed enough. Redacted is an 80,000-word commercial fiction novel that follows a crew of morally gray characters in a world of sorcery, religious cults, and corrupt kings. It will appeal to fans of The Six of Crows by Leigh Bardugo, 
Netflix's adaptation of One Piece and the Dungeons and Dragons community. Yuna is a 24-year-old orphaned rogue seasoned by a life in the streets of Port Rising, the capital of the Black Sea. She and her companions make their living as bounty hunters, traversing the seas and delivering whomever or whatever will make them the most money. After an explosive run-in with the infamous cult, the Serpents, Yuna is wrongfully thrown in an inescapable prison cell, branded with a deadly curse she can't lift with her limited sorcery abilities. The Princess of the Black Sea, Asuka Furutuno, seeks Yuna out and offers her freedom in exchange for her help in taking down the growing serpent cult that now threatens the peace of the Black Sea. The pair find a group of companions that all come with their own motivations for eliminating the cult, including a powerful priestess, a fighter, a con man, and an infamous assassin. Yuna finds that her curse continues to grow more threatening as the weeks go by, setting a clock on the amount of time she has left to find the serpent sorcerer that cast it and put an end to its life-draining power. She must also wrestle with her companion secrets that seem to show up at every corner, especially as she finds herself falling for the charming assassin trying to escape his allegiance to a dark faction of the undead. Yuna has to continue in pursuit of her mission to save her own life while also trying to outrun the assassin's past and the threat of war that comes with it. Should they fail to eradicate the serpents, or should the faction of the undead catch up, the group risks the fate they all desperately run from, death before redemption. I am an artist and writer based in Dallas, Texas, where I live with my husband and my sweet Doberman who doubles as my writing companion and service dog. The inspiration for this novel came from my love of grand adventures and frustration at the lack of diversity found in popular fantasy slash action novels. I have a bachelor's in art and a minor in English and utilized my years of writing courses and clubs to prepare myself to write this as my debut novel. Thank you, Cece. Okay, so I think that came in at 418 words, so quite long. My question is, does it behoove the author to just say commercial fiction, or should they really be drilling down into what kind of commercial fiction it is, which in this it's either fantasy or romanticy? What do you think, Cece? I would definitely specify that. So I think that's a great note. The more specific the genre, the better. And romanticy is having a really big moment. So if it is romanticy, I would definitely point that out. I don't think it's romanticy. I've been doing some research on this lately. I would just call it fantasy. That would be my opinion. Can you tell us why, Carly? I think that's helpful to our listeners. Yeah, so as I said, I have been educating myself on romanticy. It was a very, very buzzy word in 2023, and we never want to use industry terms unless we are very confident in what they are. So romanticy definitely seems to be very love story focused, and this seems more like cast of characters focused in my reading of that. And that would be one of the major things that, that I would point out. So when in doubt, if you're not like confident this is romanticy, I would just call it fantasy. Awesome, Kali. Thank you. Okay, Cece? So from the top, I thought that your paragraph was so sweet. Thank you so much for those kind words. It does come in at 418 words, like Bianca said, without that paragraph. So we're discounting that paragraph, which is totally fair because that's for the podcast. I just want everyone to know because they might be listening to a query letter that feels a little longer. There's a lot of plot points here, like a lot. 
we know that she has this life as a bounty hunter. She, she's traversing the sea. There's this cult. She's then thrown into a prison. Then there's a princess comes, offers her freedom. But then she only does that if she kills the Serpent King. So then they, they form this alliance to do that. But the curse is getting worse. So now there's a ticking time tension situation going on. And then there's like a whole bunch of companions with secrets who show up. And there's a romance situation because she starts falling for the assassin. But then the past and the secrets that some of these people are keeping might get in the way. So again, a lot of plot points, right? So I do wonder if it's all coming together in a way that feels cohesive enough. I highlighted a portion. That's the sentence that starts with, she must also wrestle with her companion secrets and goes all the way till war that comes with it. And it felt to me like almost a different book, like a very cool book. Both of them feel like very cool books, but different books. So I would encourage you to try to make it a little bit more like coming together in a way that has more causality and more intention. You really want to honor the web effect. I feel like that's important. I do wonder with all these plot points, right? Like all these awesome, inventive, imaginative plot points that your amazing brain was able to create. I do wonder if she has enough to live for in terms of story forwardness. You will notice that in most adventure stories, the hero is trying to not just save themselves, but save something, someone else, micro, not just the world. The world is not enough. Um, it needs to be someone specific to them. So I don't know, maybe it could be this love story. Maybe that takes up more space than the query letter is leading us to believe or maybe it's a little sister, or I mean, I just don't know, right? Because I don't know enough about your story, but saving herself is great, but it's just often not enough in, in stories. So I want to know what she's living for. I want that story forwardness to me. That was That's important to add there. I'm really wondering if it's intentional that we don't know more about this curse. I feel like I'd love some more specificity on it because it's a huge plot point. Like she's cursed. Like what is this curse doing to her exactly? And there's so many references to it and not enough specificity. So can you let us know? It's it's present from the very start. And I'll discuss that some more when we cover the pages. I also wondered if this was multi-POV. Is it? If so, please specify. And we have a huge cast of characters. And if it's not, that's okay too. But then I would also specify that. Just because at one point in the plot paragraphs, we talk so much about other characters and their own journeys. I also kept wanting a full circle moment. So again, all these plot points, amazing, inventive, imaginative. But like I said, they don't necessarily feel like they're coming together. One way to do that is to have, so for example, um, the assassin that she falls in love with, the hot assassin. I keep assuming everyone's hot, by the way, because in my mind they are. This hot assassin. Does this person maybe, does she find out that this person maybe is the one who led her to be put in jail? Like they betrayed her somehow. You know, I don't know. Like I wanted a full circle moment. I wanted a, oh, this all comes together and the secret that is revealed is connected to her earlier story. It's not that you have to have that. But again, I kept expecting cohesion and that's one way that my brain was expecting it to come together. There's so many ways to do it because it's a story, right? So it's your baby, you decide. And as a final note, and this is totally optional, but I will be honest and say that it's a question I had. You mentioned that you were really frustrated at the lack of diversity found in popular fantasy and action novels. And I love that. I love that. Well, I don't love that you felt frustrated, but I love that you wrote this in response to that frustration. That is a beautiful thing. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, what, what diversity you wanted to see and would you be comfortable sharing what diversity you feel the story is adding? I imagine it's tied to your personal identity and experience. So of course, if you'd rather not share, 
especially on a podcast that a whole bunch of people are listening, that's totally okay. You never have to share anything you don't want to about your personal life. But I'll, I'll be honest and say, hey, I, I would love to know, but only if you're comfortable. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Carly, your take on that? I always have so much empathy for fantasy pitches because there is absolutely so much to get into this, right? In terms of characterization and world building. So in terms of world building, I wondered if Rogue needed to be a capital R, like she's an orphaned rogue seasoned by a life in the streets. I'm just, I don't know. Did Rogue need to be capitalized? Like, is it a proper noun? I was a bit curious about that because that always, you know, sets up the understanding of the hierarchies of the world and things like that. I always think that's kind of important to know. I really liked that there was kind of this unlikely group coming together. I think that makes for a really fun cast of characters and a little bit cinematic, which is always great, right? Like this huge story is going to kind of come together in our minds. I also love that there was a ticking clock. I love a ticking clock. So I think that was excellent. The line about she must also wrestle with her companion's secrets. I wondered like... Are they compromising their safety? Like this sounds a little bit kind of quiet slash passive slash vague in terms of these other secrets. And again, it's a query letter. I know you probably don't want to kind of go into all this extra detail, but we have to get at a sense of pressure here. And so, as I said, I wondered if it was like, oh, are, are these secrets going to compromise their safety or their future world or their kind of status in their society? Like, what is it that these secrets are going to compromise? I liked the line, you know, should they fail to eradicate the serpents or should the faction of the undead catch up? The group risks the fate they all desperately run from death before redemption. Like, it did feel to me like they were staring something down in the moment. I understand what Cece's saying about, like, as this character lives into the future, like, what are they moving to? Words, but it did feel like there was a sense of adventure. They knew what they were fighting for. And yeah, as I said, I have a lot of I have a lot of empathy for pitches like these. Thank you, Carly. Okay, Cece, what was in those opening pages? Okay, so we have Yuna in her cell. She's been there for a year, totally alone, chained. The crows didn't come. And the last time this happened was the night that they hanged half the prisoners to make room for a new batch. And at that time she narrowly escaped. And she's been wrongfully imprisoned. So she has a visitor, her first ever. It's the princess. She doesn't know why the princess is there, so she tries to come up with reasons why the princess might be there. And the princess makes her an offer, help her kill the Serpent King in exchange for freedom. And that's what Yuna has always wanted. She always thinks to herself when she thinks of escaping, and she's tried to escape before, that the first thing she'll do is kill this person, this Serpent King. But now every muscle in her body is telling her to retreat. She thinks of how she's cursed. She doesn't know how she's cursed. She feels no effect, but she knows that she's cursed and she believes it's fatal. The only way to escape is to do exactly what the princess said. Thank you, Cece. Okay, what was your take on that? All right, so I want to cover my micro notes and then I'll discuss my big picture note. So we have a person wrongfully imprisoned in a cell, chained. It's been 346 days, so a little bit less than a year. And the last time the crows didn't come, it's because it was the same day they hanged a whole bunch of people. Wouldn't she be wondering if she's about to be hanged too? And so I wanted more emotionality, more spike of fear. There's a whole bunch of references to things that are happening that are so well done. But then in every instance, I was highlighting and going, and what are her specific thoughts? What are her specific emotions? So 
I really wanted that specificity in those pages. Does she think she's about to be hanged? Is that is that her biggest fear? Does part of her prefer it to be over? If she's there, life sentence is going to be hanged anyway. Is there any part of her that's like, I might as well go. My life is hopeless. And if not, if that part doesn't exist, is she surprising herself with her will to live? I wanted lots and lots of layers, you know? When a guard's voice says, Kato Yuna, a guard's voice echoed from the hallway. There's no spike of fear. Wouldn't there be a spike of fear with a guard's voice? I think there would be. When she has the visitor, she thinks to herself, you know, the only answer could be death because her companions couldn't be visiting her. So I guess my question was, what does that mean? The only answer could be death. Do the guards trick people? Do the guards come in and say, oh, you have a visitor and in reality people get hanged? Like, is that what happens? So I guess I just wanted a little bit more specificity on her thoughts as they pertain to this world. Another example of this is the fact that at one point she starts speaking in a low voice because she doesn't want the other prisoners to hear. And I'll tell you something, if you've been in a cell for 346 days, you have made relationships. Even if you can't speak, you find a way, you tap the wall, you hum, you, I don't know, there's human nature is you form relationships wherever you are. That includes prisons. And so I wanted that. I wanted, and it could be an absence. She could miss the cellmate that she had and who was killed in the latest hangings. It could be anything. But I wanted specificity in the relationships that over these 346 days she created and developed or even wanted to create and develop. Even wanting to might be enough. So I have all these notes, right, about the fact that she sees the princess and she thinks the princess is... Beautiful. The princess was lovingly designated the pearl of the sea. She was virtually idolized for her beauty, her kindness, her image. The princess's voice is always described as velvety and light. It carries through the air like a dainty violin solo, sweet and melodic. You have all these references to the princess being amazing, right? But my question is, doesn't the princess have power? Like she's a princess. I assume she has power. Maybe she doesn't, in which case I want to know. If she's so against the way the justice system is working, and she must be because she's wrongfully in prison and about to be hanged, right? Wouldn't she kind of like have mixed feelings about the princess, at least layers, you know? And when she does see the princess for the first time, she doesn't know. She's trying to decipher why, why the princess might be there, and she doesn't know. And in my head, I was like, she would assume she's being pardoned. You know, she would be like the princess found out that her imprisonment was wrongful and she's there to pardon her. And then immediately she would think about how ridiculous that is, because, of course, the princess wouldn't come for one lowly person. Or maybe she would think the opposite. She would think the princess, who's sadistic, wants to see her die. I don't know. I just wanted, I guess, more specificity in the thoughts. And this is one of those situations where our subscribers will will really see all the moments where I highlighted and I was asking all these questions. I was like, I really just want to know more, more specificity, more interiority, which is a great sign because it shows you that I was really curious and you've created such a fun world. So as a big picture note, though, even though I have all these questions about what's happening in this specific scene, I will say that I'm not sure this is the best scene that you should be starting your novel with. So here's what I thought. After the princess arrives, she has this moment of every muscle in her body wants to say no to the princess, right? And I was thinking to myself, you're not leveraging the very cool and tense setting and situation that you have here. You have someone in prison. And we know she's tried to escape before because her interiority tells us about background, about context, about things that happened off page. I think that you should start with her trying to escape. It could be her fifth attempt, her 10th attempt. I don't know. It doesn't matter the number. And this time she really thinks she's going to do it. She really thinks she's going to try to escape, but she is caught. And then she's taken to a room and she's super tense 
And in this room, she's convinced she's about to be hanged because, you know, after so many attempts, they're definitely going to hang her. But then the princess arrives. And that's a huge surprise because she's expecting someone to, you know, behead her or something. But instead, it's the princess. And then the princess makes the proposition for her. Like, And again, this is just an idea, but I just think that if you had a scene with more action, as opposed to her just sitting down and receiving a visitor, that would really up the action adventure elements of your story, which are so good, like so good, so amazing. So I really wanted that. And it might also be a really good opportunity to dig into the social justice values that she must have. Like she is someone who would steal from the rich that is referenced a few times. And the princess is is royalty, right? She would steal from nobility. Like nobility and royalty are very connected. So I wanted her to feel these messy emotions towards the princess when the princess comes into the room and she's expecting someone to kill her. And instead the princess is saving her in a way, but at the same time, the princess is the reason why she's there because she's the person with power. So I just think you have so much potential in your setup and there's ways to leverage it that, yes, do mean a rewrite, but in my opinion, one that would really elevate the curiosity elements here. Thank you, Cece. I really liked what you said there about having a theory, because remember, for our listeners, it tells you so much about the character in terms of what they're expecting. So, for example, for me, I'm a very pessimistic person. If my phone suddenly lights up and says Oprah or it says Reese, I'm not going, oh, my God, they're choosing my book for their book club. I'm like, oh, my God, I insulted them on my podcast and they're phoning me to sue me. Right. So how a person with a theory that they have about something tells you a lot about them as a person. Are they optimistic, pessimistic? etc so great suggestion there cc okay carly over to you i really want to say you know we've had incredibly high quality material sent to us today like i just want to give you know round of applause to you guys because i was super super impressed on a line level with both of the submissions today so i obviously want to give you guys kudos for that and ultimately i think i don't really have much more to add i mean i feel like cc's in-depth analysis here was was really spot on about again how the character is going to kind of react to each situation i feel like the sense of revenge here is like palpable and i think cc's suggestions were, were really on point here so i don't know i, I might be speechless for the first time uh, on this show there's always a first for everything. Right. So for our Substack supporters, remember that you'll be able to find the additional content there. There's always a lot more detail in our notes than what we're able to get to on the show. So it's definitely worth your while supporting us there and getting access to those notes. All right, Carly and Cece, as always, thank you so much. Let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. 
Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words. So you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Love Theoretically and The Love Hypothesis, as well as a writer of peer-reviewed articles about brain science, in which no one makes out and the ever after is not always happy. Originally from Italy, she lived in Germany and Japan before moving to the U.S. to pursue a Ph.D. in neuroscience. When she's not hard at work, she can be found running, eating cake pops, or watching sci-fi movies with her three feline overlords and her slightly less feline husband. It's my pleasure to welcome Ali Hazelwood. Ali, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's so exciting to have you. We've had so many of our listeners request that we reach out to you. So we were really excited when we got this interview. Now, Ali, before we go into discussing Bride, which is the book that we are looking at today, this is a steamy rom-com. We're not quite sure where the conversation is going to go. We do always have our podcast listed as an adults-only podcast, but we do know that some of you listen to it while driving around with your children in the car. (laughs) Today might not 
not be the day for that. So we're just giving you a warning about that. Now, before we dive into the actual book called Bride, Ali, we really love a good origin story on this podcast because our listeners are emerging authors who are trying to get published, who are trying to make all their literary dreams come true, and they love hearing from other authors how they got there. Now, we're going to discuss the huge success of your debut novel, The Love Hypothesis, but I first want to discuss a bit about how you gained popularity as a fan fiction writer. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So I'm not sure that gain popularity <laughs> is actually a good way of putting it. I, I feel like I was really just out there writing fan fiction for a bunch of different fandoms. I think I started out with the Star Trek fandom. I was in love with Commander Spock. And then I moved to the Star Wars fandom. So, you know, there is a pattern of sci-fi definitely here. And, you know, I was just, that's that's how I started writing fiction. I wasn't really writing before then. And uh, I would, you know, write my fan fiction and post it online to the archive of our own AO3. And then what happened was that my agent, who is also a huge nerd, basically she started reading my fan fiction and she told me, you know, if you were interested in traditionally publishing, I think that your style of writing might be compatible with traditional publishing. And that's kind of how I started writing more original things and then I became published. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's really interesting. I missed the part where you said where you were publishing them too. Sorry. Could you tell us that again? It was an archive of our own, AO3. It's a, it's basically the biggest fan fiction website that you can find at this point. I feel like if you know anything about fan fiction, like if you are someone who actually enjoys writing fan fiction, probably you're familiar with it. So for our listeners who are more interested in fan fiction, because it isn't something that I've ever known too much about, and I know we have listeners who will know a lot about it, but there will be listeners as well who are like, okay, what is this? How do I get started? So is it a case of you write something that is based on something that you love, and then it is open to all readers on that platform to read it? Are they able to give you feedback? How does that work? Yeah, it's pretty much what you said. So usually the way it works uh, is that um, there is some kind of existing copyrighted property, which could be whatever, you know, it could be, I'm making it up now, but like, it could be Gossip Girl, or it could be a video game, or it could be a movie. And uh, the, the idea of fan fiction is that you feel like there is something missing in that movie, or that there is something that should be explored about the characters, but that it's not there in the canon material. And so what you decide is that, you will take these characters and have them do other things that are not described in the movie or show or video game or whatever it is that you want. And uh, you can write it and then upload it to AO3, the website I, I mentioned, and really everyone can access it. It's, it's a very democratic platform. People can comment... Like they can write comments and they can, you know, message you. Well, not not personally, but like underneath the fan fiction, they can, I guess you said give feedback. Yes, they can. There is a little bit of an ethics in fan fiction where the idea is that because you're writing and putting out something that is, you know, an artistic endeavor for free, usually the idea is if you don't like something, maybe don't go and uh, tell the author, just kind of click out of the fan fiction since it's for free and 
and, and since, you know, for a lot of people, fan fiction is uh, this kind of happy place where they are trying to escape things like, you know, the pressure of having your work uh, criticized or the pressure of uh, having to workshop your writing. So the, the idea is uh, kind of to hold back the criticism a little bit. But yes, you can definitely write comments under the fan fictions. That's awesome. And you know what? It's it's instant feedback, which I think is the hard thing for so many writers. Because when you sit down to write a novel, that can take a year to two years. Maybe you're getting alpha and beta readers to read it, but you're not getting sort of instant feedback. You know, whereas if you write something on a fan fiction site and if people like it, That must be hugely encouraging, Ali, to get instant feedback where people are like, oh, wow, I love your work. I love your voice. I love what you're doing here. Yeah, you are so right. And I think a big part of this is that especially when you're starting out with writing, you second guess yourself a lot. You wonder... You know, like the direction the story is taking, is it good? Will anyone like it? And especially if it's your first manuscript, I think that there are a lot of points in the writing process where you could just stop writing. You could be like, you know what, I'm giving up on this. I don't know if I'm doing it right. And for me, starting with fan fiction meant that I, like you said, I had this chapter by chapter feedback where there were people telling me, this is interesting, I would read more of this. And that is a huge encouragement. So I I definitely think it's a great starting point if you want to become a writer. But I also don't think that fan fiction has to necessarily be a platform uh, uh, that then leads to, you know, traditional publishing. For some people, writing fan fiction is just what it is. They write fan fiction and they don't want to write original things. And that's absolutely fine. Yeah. And I love that your agent said, look, I love your writing style, etc. And that's maybe why you want to write a novel as opposed to I'm offering you representation because you have 20,000 followers on this platform. Because I think that's something that a lot of writers worry about as well. I need a platform. I need a platform. And that's the only way to get a publishing deal. Yeah, I definitely did not have 20,000 followers. I have to be honest. I wasn't like an exceedingly popular fan fiction writer. There a lot of fan fictions that have kind of gone mainstream and that even people who don't usually read fan fiction kind of have read but that was not the case for my fan fiction it was it was pretty it was popular within my fandom but it wasn't that popular at all so I definitely think that what my my agent was was definitely focused on the writing style and generally I write pretty tropey romance uh, stuff and uh, she likes that you know she she was like I really like the way you play with the tropes and I really like uh, the way you sort of have this uh, kind of rom-com writing style which uh, is uh, what the romance word was focusing on at the time this was 2020 so you know it was right at the beginning of the pandemic Uh, people were definitely looking for uh, something that would help them escape the misery of just kind of being (laughs) yeah being stuck at home so yeah Yeah, and it just goes to show for our listeners out there, you never know who's reading your work, you know, whether you're writing an essay or an article or an op-ed or whatever the case may be is, you know, you you never quite know who's going to read it and what opportunity that might lead to. Now, in terms of the love hypothesis, just to give our listeners who aren't familiar with it an understanding, so it became an overnight sensation, right? It was released in September 2021. A second printing was ordered less than 24 hours after the book went on sale. I mean, that is unheard of. 
It was an instant New York Times, USA Today bestseller, hit all the bestseller lists. It was Book of the Month selection, an Apple and Amazon Best of the Month book, and both a library reads and indie next pick. Film rights were picked up, etc. So huge, huge success straight out the gate because clearly the publisher loved this because a book doesn't just overnight become a bestseller. You know, it takes months for a publisher to get that book onto the indie next pick because they've got to send it to all the booksellers months ahead of time so that they can read it and love it and then nominate it for an indie next pick. Same goes for book of the month. So a publisher's really, really got to be invested in a book, really believe in it to put in so much work ahead of the time to ensure that a book's going to be a success. So how did that feel, Ali, to have that huge confidence in your work straight out the gate? Okay, so I absolutely felt like my publisher was amazing. I I think I was very lucky. My book went up for auction when, when we were... Like, actually, I was on submission. So the submission phase is when your agent is pitching the book to editors for about nine months. So it took a long, long time before I actually sold the book. But once we got to the sales phase, there were three publishers that were interested in the book. And I truly felt from the very start that my editor understood and believed in my book. I've always felt incredibly supported by her. Her name is Sarah Blumenstock at Berkeley. And uh, yeah, I, I always felt like, you know, she had my back and she had my books back and she really wanted the book to you know, come out and have as much and be as successful as as it was possible. She was definitely great in terms of, you know, advocating for it in-house. I, I definitely felt like I was lucky there were paper arcs, so paper advanced copies of my book that were sent to booksellers, for example. And that was kind of a treat because not every book had that, especially during the pandemic. Yeah, generally, I definitely felt like my my publisher was great for me. And I have felt that for every single one of my books afterwards. So it's really nice. It's really good. And I know that there are, I know that that's not the experience for everyone. And it's definitely a place of privilege for me to have that. And uh, I am very grateful. Something that I'd like to backtrack there. So you said the book was out on submission for nine months, but then you got to a point where three publishers were interested. That's super unusual and really interesting. So was it a case of you kind of had either rejections or silence for nine months and then one publisher was interested and suddenly more people were interested? How did that happen? So my understanding is that it's quite common once one publisher is interested, your agent reaches out to all the other publishers and says, by the way, we have an offer for this. So if you're interested, you might want to read it right now. And and that's kind of when people get interesting. It's a very when it rain, it pours type of situation. So if publishers are aware that there's some interest in your book, they're like, well, if someone else is interested, maybe I should be interested too. So that's kind of a little bit of a gold rush type of thing. But yeah, I was on sub for a long, long time. Um, I think part of it was the pandemic. Another part of it was that, so I first got, you know, some interest in my book, but also rejections that were mis- mostly based on the fact that the book, so The Law Hypothesis was originally one of my fan fiction that I kind of reworked. And one of the things that I was told was that, it did not really work in its initial form. 
And so there was some editing that I had to do about halfway through submission. And then generally, I think things were moving very, very, very slowly at that time because, yeah, just, you know, it was the pandemic and people were getting used to working from home and uh, they were getting used to like a completely new way of uh, being in publishing. So that's part of it, I think. Yeah, you know, it, it is true that once someone wants you, everyone wants you. Yeah. Um, but generally, those things happen faster. So for all the writers out there who are out on submission, and it has been a while, and you are losing hope, this is a very encouraging, you know, tale. So, all right, so let's discuss the actual book, Ali. So I'm going to read the flap copy for our listeners. The book is called Bride. Misery Lark, daughter of a powerful vampire councilman, is an outcast. Her days of living anonymously among the humans are over. She's been called upon to uphold an alliance between the vampires and their mortal enemies, the Wears. Wears are ruthless, unpredictable, and their alpha, Low Morland, is no exception. He rules his pack with absolute authority, but not without justice or feeling. It's clear from the way he tracks Misery's every movement that he doesn't trust her. If only he knew just how right his instinct was. Misery has her own reasons for agreeing to this marriage of convenience, reasons that have nothing to do with politics or alliances, and everything to do with the only thing she's ever cared about. And she's willing to do whatever it takes to get back what's hers. Dun, dun, dun. So, you know, for people who've listened to the podcast for a long time, you will recall that a few years ago we were saying you cannot sell a vampire or a werewolf book at that particular time. We said it was saturated, it was done. And then we also said, but don't worry, that'll change. They will come back into fashion. And here Ali is making sure that this kind of book is going to be on the New York Times bestseller list again. So Ali, what do you think it is about vampires and werewolves that readers are so fascinated by? Why can't they get enough of these stories? You know, I am not sure. I think uh, I think there are different things that people like about it. I know that what I like about the idea of, you know, paranormal romance uh, and generally of anything that has a little bit of magic in it is that the concept of faded mates becomes possible and I really really love the idea of faded mates and of people who are meant to be together. It's something that it's a little bit it, it's a little bit tricky within uh you know a contemporary romance context but like if you have werewolves then it makes sense yeah absolutely and you know it's interesting how it's still a rom-com it's still a signature Ellie Hazelwood book you've got all the steam you've got the enemies to lovers but it just happens to be paranormal so you know it's it's wonderful how you can take something that you're really good at but also leverage that into a slightly different genre so that I think you don't stagnate as a writer. Because something that was really interesting to me here was the amount of world building that you had to do. So, you know, when it comes to the anatomy and the physiology of characters like these, it's really important to focus on things like how do they mate? What does that mean? If a character doesn't eat, if they don't sit down with other people around a dinner table and eat, then how does that look, etc. So there's a lot of attention to detail there. Was that a challenge for you after the first two books? I feel like you had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, so I'm going to be honest, for me, any sort of word building was 
you know, functional to their romance. So that's that's what came first. Like I wanted, you know, these two people, Misery and Low, to have reasons to kind of be distrustful of each other. And I also wanted them to be attracted to each other. And I wanted them to have like these both big differences, but also like small little cultural differences that would make it fun for them to sort of reconcile that and, and still end up falling in love. And uh, so for me, the world building sort of came after, like I knew this sort of love story that I wanted. And then I started building the world in function of that. But uh, it, it was definitely fun. I, you know, the thing of vampires and, you know, werewolves is that the, the lore about these species is, you know, it changes from book to book and uh, you can do whatever you want because it's not real. So you could have a vampire that dies in the sun and you can have vampires that like, you know, have sensitive eyes and that's it. And they can be in the sun however long they want. You can have werewolves that can shift into wolves whenever they like or you can have werewolves that are absolutely out of control when the moon is out you can really do whatever you like and and that's that's just fun i i love that you know i just love the idea of being able to take something i love and just add it as a detail because i'm not constrained by actual science yeah excellent excellent point there and you know, you discussed the tropes earlier. So, you know, one of the tropes in this book, besides enemies to lovers and the forced proximity, is that of the alpha male. Now, whenever I come to books with alpha males, I always get really nervous because, you know, how do you balance the alpha male trope with modern day concerns around feminism? You know, you don't want to have this completely misogynistic character who's off-putting to feminist readers, but you really did such a good job here of balancing his alphaness along with misery and her personality type because she's snarky and sassy and salty and sexy, but she's also very vulnerable, kind of damaged in a way. You know, she's loyal and kind. So how do you achieve that balance? I think uh, it really depends uh, on, uh, I guess I would say it depends on what alpha male means to you for me I, I know that there is a lot of like literature out there where being alpha male means you know ordering people around and deciding what happens in their relationship and sort of like treating women like they are more of an object but like for me the reason I wanted Lo to be an alpha like he needed to be an alpha because he needed to be the leader of his pack because that was how I was able to you know make his uh marriage of convenience to misery possible but it's interesting the idea of the alpha male is that he's someone who's powerful and for me being powerful also means being confident and to me a, a confident person doesn't act all jealous and doesn't tell others what they can or cannot do you know like it's it's just not something that I think is inherently attractive so that's not the type of alpha male that I particularly enjoy writing so it, it really for me it really it, it just it's about what I enjoy writing and what I find actually attractive I don't even think about it too much I find a guy who's trying to order around someone just kind of ridiculous personally so there's that yeah yeah you know as I was saying earlier it really really worked how did you approach the job of sort of creating misery because as a character she's incredibly well formed you know she's well-rounded she as I said she's really sarcastic she's snarky she 
you know, makes these kind of cutting remarks sometimes, but she's really funny. And even when she's being cutting, there's a kindness underneath her. And that's something that is so difficult to write because you have a character and you're trying to show that they're kind of damaged emotionally. And this has made them a certain way, you know, this explains their behaviors, but at the same time, you want them to be vulnerable. You want the, the reader to connect with them. So was that something that came quite easy to you or was it a case of, you know, coming at it from different angles and constantly layering her as you got to understand her better? Yeah, so I really wanted her to be a little bit hardened from the very beginning. You know, it, it was pretty obvious that someone or at least it was what I wanted. I wanted someone who's like her and as resilient as she is to have some coping mechanisms because, you know, this, this is someone who has been sent to die and basically told that she was use, useless many, many times. Um, so her obvious reaction is to say, well, I don't care about anyone else because no one cares about me. And that is very fair. But, you know, there are some things that she cannot help but care about and the main thing is you know her best friend she is looking for her best friend and uh, that's why she agrees to the marriage of convenience and she is this you know this person who is kind of the opposite of misery in a way because her best friend is this person who actually cares a lot and wants misery to care about things and wants misery to be involved and sort of aware of the world around her so that was that was it was really interesting to write that dynamic and having you know Serena misery's best friend is not really a character that is very present in the book but she's there in misery's head and that is why you kind of you kind of get to know her through misery's eyes and it's it's kind of like a she's a foil to misery so that was one way of making misery sympathetic and likable the other was low's sister so low has a younger sister that misery did not know exists and uh, basically what happens is that misery meets her and she really does not want to like her like she does not care she's there for a reason the reason is finding her best friend and she does not care about this child but like the more I wrote interactions between Misery and uh, Lo's sister the more I sort of realized that she was this key character that really made you understand how Misery works like she's trying very hard to protect herself and to not care but she's absolutely helpless when Anna is there like she just cannot help caring for this child and I think that was kind of like the key to make her a little bit more sympathetic. Yeah, excellent advice there. So for those of you who are struggling with these kinds of prickly characters, this is where your secondary characters come in and why they're so important, you know, because it does help convey your main character in a way that does make them more accessible, maybe softens them, makes them more vulnerable than they would otherwise be. Because certainly this child draws out things in misery that we would otherwise not see if she was not interacting with this child. Last thing, Ali, before our time runs out, you write steamy sex scenes really well. You write seduction incredibly well. Now for our listeners out there who aren't writing rom-coms, who aren't writing romance, if you've got anything in your novel that has to do with attraction, with seduction, etc., read rom-coms to understand this. I recently had a writer who I'm working with and I'm helping look at his novel, etc. 
and he had a question for me about a sort of couple's interaction. Should he do this or should he do that? And I was like, dude, if you read romance novels, you would be able to answer this question for yourself. You would be able to understand what you should withhold and what you should give away at what point. So Ali, for our listeners who are writing in this genre, or perhaps who just want to get better at the sex scenes and the steamy stuff, what's your advice there? I guess my main advice is uh, look at your characters and try to figure out what works and what is realistic between them. The reason why I think the reason why in romance novels sex scenes are so usually so good and so well written is that it's kind of a character for first type of genre where the most important thing is the journey that the characters are on, right? And uh, they definitely, you know, like sex and, you know, relationships and anything that it, physical that happens between them usually is related to their internal journeys and their feelings. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is if you want to write attraction between your characters, make sure that it's in character and that it fits the type of uh, both their personalities, but also like the things that their values, the things that they are looking for. That is kind of how it becomes more than just, you know, reading some sex on page and more like something that you are actually very interested in reading and want to read more of. Yeah, I think it's it's creating chemistry between two characters. And a lot of that chemistry between two characters is what they think about each other mm-hmm. and what they anticipate might happen as opposed to what actually happens. I think a lot of that is the build up before you get to the actual sex, which I think is something a lot of people don't understand when writing about sex. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Ali, thank you so, so much for your time. We really appreciate it. For our listeners, we are linking to Bride on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Go there and take a look. Thanks, Ali. Thank you so much. Today's guest is the author of Such a Fun Age, which was a New York Times bestseller and longlisted for the Booker Prize. Her writing has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Playboy, The Guardian, and others. She's currently an assistant professor at the University of Michigan. It's my pleasure to welcome Kylie Reed. Kylie, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful having you. Now, for our listeners, you know that during our Books with Hooks segment, we like to offer advice in terms of try not to do X, Y, and Z because it doesn't really work. These are the so-called writing rules, so try and stick to them. And we do this because we see so many of your submissions to our Books with Hooks segment, and we see emerging writers making the same mistakes over and over. So we try and caution you against certain things. But you guys know me. You know that every now and again, I love to chat with an author who's broken all the so-called rules so that you can toss out the rule book and run around giddy with the freedom of it. Now, the last episode in which I did this was my interview with Anne Patchett, and we're going to be doing it again today. Woohoo! But remember, the caveat is that there are authors out there who make things look really simple, like Olympic athletes. They've trained at it. They know their craft and they make it look deceptively simple. So if you're going to break rules, do it with intentionality and complete and utter control. Now, Kylie, before we begin talking about both books of yours, actually, could you take us through your journey to publication with such a fun age? Because there's nothing that emerging writers love more than hearing fairy tale success stories that they themselves can dream of. Okay. (laughs) Well, I don't know if I should start with such a fun age or all of the failed novels that came before it. There were several, (laughs) 
So Such a Fun Age is my first novel that made it rather than the first. And so I started writing it in 2014. I applied to a bunch of graduate schools in 2016, and I was rejected from nine of them and waitlisted for two. So I thought, let me give this one more go. I lived in Arkansas where the new book is based and I applied to graduate school again and I got into nine schools the second time around and went much better. And I took about 120 pages of such a fun age to graduate school with me. And from there, I was in the novel writing workshop, which really pushed me to have as many pages as I could because I wanted feedback on as many of them as possible. I finished a draft in maybe April of 2018, and I started to query, and then the process went a little bit quicker. So I partnered with an agent, and we edited the book for about six weeks, and then we put the book on submission. From there, it did move quite quickly, and we sold the book 10 days later, and that was a big whirlwind. But from there, I don't know if a lot of, I'm sure your authors know this because they're writers as well, it was 18 months until publication. And so it's a very long time from finishing something to when it's out in the world. And sometimes you're like, wait, what, what, did, I, <laughs> what did I write about four years ago? So yeah, that was the journey with such a fun age. I love that. You know, for our listeners, we see what we think is an overnight success story. We see somebody like Kylie bursting onto the scene and we're like, oh, this is overnight success. But we don't see all those failed manuscripts that helped her hone her craft, that helped her get to the point of writing such a fun age, which then became such a huge success. So I always find that so incredibly encouraging. Because our listeners are in those phases. They're in the query trenches. They've perhaps been turned down. And many of them go, well, maybe I should stop writing. But this is an example why you absolutely shouldn't. You need to keep going. Okay, so for our listeners, I'm going to read the flap copy for the book we're discussing today, which is Come and Get It, right? So it's 2017 at the University of Arkansas. Millie Cousins, a senior resident assistant wants to graduate, get a job and buy a house. So when Agatha Paul, a visiting professor and writer, offers Millie an easy yet unusual opportunity, she jumps at the chance. But Millie's starry-eyed hustle becomes jeopardized by odd new friends, vengeful dorm pranks and illicit intrigue. A fresh and intimate portrait of desire, consumption, and reckless abandon, Come and Get It is a tension-filled story about money, indiscretion, and bad behavior, and the highly anticipated new novel by acclaimed and award-winning author, Kylie Reed. Now, those of you who listen to the podcast have heard both Cece and Carly, our agents, talk about how juicy power imbalances are and how juicy stories about money are because of how much they can convey in terms of who has it, who doesn't have it, and how the power shifts accordingly. Now, Carly, on the podcast, we're always talking about circling the building of a story to find your entry point into it, right? Because before you put pen to paper, there are endless ways to begin a story that's just been percolating in your mind. With such a fun age, the entry point was pretty obvious. Can you take us through the just a summary of the first chapter in terms of that inciting incident? Sure. Such a Fun Age starts on a Saturday night in September in 2015. And we meet Amira Tucker. She's a 25-year-old Black recent graduate from Temple University. And she's at a party. She's having a good time. And she's very broke because our friends' birthdays can make us broke sometimes. Her employer, Alex Chamberlain, who hires Amira to babysit a few times a week, calls her and says, hey, we had a family emergency. 
can you take Briar to the grocery store for a few hours? I'll pay you double. Amira says, absolutely. She goes to a grocery store with her friend Zara and three-year-old Briar, and they're having fun. They're dancing in the aisles until a customer and a security guard, upon seeing a Black woman with a young white child, accuse Amira of kidnapping. So that was the entry point to the story. I love, I agree with you. I really love stories that connect people at the beginning in ways that they can't soon forget. Right. So that was such an attention-grabbing opening, but it was the obvious entry point for that story because we had conflict, we had tension, we had everybody sort of aligned who the main characters were going to be. Now, in terms of come and get it, we begin at the University of Arkansas, we've got Agatha Paul, as we said, who's visiting professor and writer, and she's coming to meet Millie, who's the senior resident assistant, and Millie has set up a group of 20-year-old students who'll be answering some of Agatha's questions about weddings for her research for her books. Now, I'd love to pick your brain about choosing this as the entry point into this particular story, why you saw this as the inciting incident. Because I know for many of our authors, when they submit to Books with Hooks, we're going, I'm not sure this is the right place to start. Circle the building some more. And beginnings can be so tough to find that entry point. So can you talk us through why this was the entry point for this story? Sure. Yes. I think Entry points are so difficult because you have one shot to grab people, but also this is something my students and I talk about a lot in class because I'm often reading beginnings of novels. I believe firmly that your first chapter is teaching your reader how to read your book and really setting the tone for what they're going to see for the rest of the novel. In such a fun age, there were these kind of big set pieces of this grocery store incident, this big Thanksgiving dinner, and then a new segment at the end. It was like very traditional big plot points at these three intersections. Come and Get It works with a lot of low-level dread that like is building up in you as you are reading it. And so in the first chapter, I really wanted to do a few things. I wanted to integrate the reader into the language that I had been also been inundated by when I was doing my research. I wanted them to get used to hearing people gossip, and the way that they spoke and said, oh my gosh, no way, and things. I wanted to get them used to that world. I also wanted to start showing that power imbalance very quickly with this academic woman interviewing these young people. The first chapter ends with two of the main characters talking together, and they exchange a little bit of money, and money exchanging hands is a big part of this novel as well. So those were some of the things I was thinking about in this first chapter. Incredible. So, you know, we say to our listeners, first chapter has to do so much heavy lifting, introducing the characters, introducing themes, establishing the tone, what the stakes are, what the conflicts are, etc, etc. So, you know, I love what Kali said that the first chapter is teaching your reader how to have a conversation with your book, how to have a conversation with your characters, because that's so important as well. Now, another piece of advice we give to our listeners often is to try and combine and minimize characters, because we'll see opening chapters and there's just too many characters. And we say, if your story needs to have a lawyer, and a next door neighbor, is it possible to integrate them so that they, the same person, so the reader doesn't have to be introduced to so many different characters. But what Kylie's done here again, breaking the rules, love it, is that the students who we meet in the opening scene are Tyler, Jenna, and Casey. 
And they aren't the ones who we properly get introduced to in Chapter 3 when Millie is supervising her students and moving them in on moving in day. The ones we get to meet and know very well there and who become important in the rest of the story are Tyler, Peyton, and Kennedy. So Tyler is our common denominator in the two chapters, but the other two, Jenna and Casey, are Tyler's friends and a different woman to her roommates. So when I said earlier, when we break the rules, we need to do it with intentionality and complete control. So Kylie, when you broke these rules, why was it important that the people we meet in the opening chapter are not the same as the students who we're going to focus on later on? Sure. A a few reasons. And I think that that's great advice. Having a lot of characters is very complicated. And yeah, you have to be really intentional about how you're presenting them. For me, Tyler, Casey, and Jenna were this little gaggle of women who you see often throughout the book. And so the important thing was differentiating them immediately in the first chapter. One thing I learned in graduate school is any question that your audience is going to have, have your character do the work for them. So Agatha's meeting them for the first time as well, and she really wants to remember who they are. So I think it's on like page six or five. She says, okay, Tyler, hat, mean, Casey, blonde, Southern, Jenna, tall, tan. Like she categorizes them herself and she's doing that naturally. But I also want the reader to do that as well so they can jump on board and enjoy these characters. Casey was one character that I, she's from Clark County, Alabama. And so she speaks a little bit differently. And so immediately without saying Casey said or Casey replied, you know that it's her when she's speaking. So that was the one character I did that for in the book. And I think that that differentiates her nicely. But as far as the other characters go, I think it's really important to give them full-fledged personalities, but trademarks that are their own. So that by chapter three, you're like, oh my gosh, that's so Jenna. Oh, of course, Tyler did that. You want to start those categories really early on. I also love how Agatha goes, Tyler mean. So we get it very early on that Tyler's actually the antagonist of the story. And because she categorizes her as such, we start to pay more attention to Tyler. And sort of innocuous things she does, we start to look at it in a different lens. And we're like, was that innocuous or was that actually mean, as Agatha said? So it's a a great sort of hack to get the reader immediately paying attention to one character and trying to interpret their actions through this lens of is she mean or is Agatha an unreliable narrator? So I love that as well. I'm going to come back to something else, but something I want to skip ahead to is what you've said about dialogue. Now for our listeners, Kylie is a master of dialogue. It's just incredible how authentic the dialogue is. When you read Kylie's work, you honestly feel like you're sitting somewhere eavesdropping on a conversation that's happening next to you because it feels so real. So I want to read to you from, I mean, it's page 225. I'm not giving any spoilers. So we have dialogue happening here. Okay, no, get ready. Colette stood. She held out her arms and pushed the tent aside. Millie, pay attention. This will change your life. This is... This is the move. So I hang out and I'm just normal about it. And then when it's time to go, I'm like, hey, she walked around Roland then. And then I act all confused, like I just woke up and I go, hey, no, wait. I say, wait, like 18 times. And then I take a second and I do. Just just the teeniest little peck. Her hands went to Roland's shoulders. She didn't kiss him, but she came close. And then they go, what? And I go, oh, shoot, I'm, dang it, oops, oh, no. 
But then that's not even the important part. Then you have to be like, oh, hey, just to be clear, I wasn't trying to date you. I just thought because you said, basically, you just start a bunch of sentences. You never finish them. And then they'll be like, oh, no, it's okay. Don't worry. No, we're good. And then within 24 hours, I guarantee, hey, can we talk? Game over. So can we talk about writing that kind of dialogue that is just so authentic? Does it come from eavesdropping a lot, Kylie? What's your secret? It's it's like proper eavesdropping. I interview a lot of people and eavesdropping as well. If I'm sitting next to someone and they say something interesting, I will 100% write it down. I You said it better than I could have. I want my readers to feel like they are eavesdropping in the same way that, that Agatha is often doing in the story. I love stories that kind of fold over themselves and comment on themselves. I think hyper-realistic dialogue is something that I've always wanted to achieve in my writing, but it is very difficult because reading really realistic dialogue is very different from hearing it. Um, my husband has a journalistic part of his work, and he was interviewing a lot of people a few years ago, and I was transcribing a lot of the interviews for him. And as I was transcribing them, it was such a lesson in how we do not speak straightforward chronologically we're going in every little direction we're repeating ourselves all the time and when I was interviewing young girls too it was just writing down what they were saying it was oh my gosh this yeah no like all of the time and so it was a really tricky balance between including all of those little quirks that we have as we're figuring out our thoughts but also not making them grading for the reader to read so it's a thin balance and you just have to go on both sides until you feel like something reads absolutely perfect yeah, I learned that when I started this podcast. So when I started the podcast, I edited it myself. And you try and edit, you know, to make it concise and less choppy. And you realize how people circle back on their thoughts while they're figuring something out. And then they'll get to the part that's articulate. But there'll be sort of a few seconds, probably 15 seconds as oh, they yeah. stop themselves, cut themselves off and, and try and figure it out. And then when I take the transcripts of the interviews and try and put it in a quote, I've got to take out a lot as well so that it'll make sense. Yeah. So for our listeners, do that. Listen to people. Tape these kinds of things because it really helps you with that. Something else that Kylie does incredibly well, and this is something we say on the podcast all the time, lean into specificity and give the reader something to imagine. Don't just give us talking heads, he said, she said. Give us action beats so that we can understand and imagine for ourselves what the character's doing, what their gestures are. Because when we're imagining, we are actively engaged in the story as opposed to being passively fed it. So I want to read one of these action beats to you, and they are throughout the novel. This is something Kylie does incredibly well, and her editor, Sally Kim, points this out as well in the editor's notes. So it says here... It felt like the moment was naturally bending towards the other two staff members introducing themselves, but Ryland, Millie guessed his name from the staff list, placed the bottoms of his feet together. With his elbows, he gently pressed down on his knees. The other RA reached to plug a charger into an outlet. Lying on her left side, she connected her phone and began to scroll. Millie crisscrossed her legs beneath her and held on to each of her ankles. Right, so can we talk? Kylie, about why we need this kind of specificity when it comes to movement on a page. Yeah, why, why not just skip that, for example? For, I mean, for me as a reader, that's why I pick up a book, <laughs> because I want to see the most perfect 
gesture, with hands, with a face, something that is saying everything, even though the characters aren't saying anything as well. This makes for a very humiliating writing process because I have to do those motions to make sure that they are reading true and, and make sure that you know everything is accurate. But I feel that so much of our conversation, especially with strangers or people that we work with, we're, we're doing what we were talking about right now. We're circling everything except what we're trying to say. And so I feel like action is incredibly important and gestures are a huge part of my work. You know what, doing the gestures is fine if you're at home when you're writing or when you're alone. It is a bit humiliating when you are sitting in a coffee shop and suddenly you have the hands going and you're crossing the legs and whatever, but it does help. And I say to a lot of emerging writers, even videotape. Maybe if you have somebody tying somebody up to a chair, videotape friends doing it, film it, so that you can then watch it afterwards to see the order in which things happened, because it's hugely, hugely helpful. All right, another one of the rules that Kylie has broken that I want to get to is we say, try not to delve into backstory too early on, because it can drag things backwards and if you're focusing too much on backstory, did you perhaps start in the wrong place? Should you have started somewhere else? We say immerse the reader in scene, do a lot of showing, don't do backstory, exposition and telling. Now, with both of your books, Kylie, you've done this so well that I'm now actually, I've coined it the Kylie Reed signature move in that, <laughs> yeah, for our listeners, the Kylie Reed signature move. In chapter one, you immerse us in scene. We have a scene unfolding. We are there with them. And in both books, chapter two, we have a chapter that goes to another character that gives us quite a bit of their backstory, their history, the exposition of who they are. Can you tell us why you do this and how our listeners might do the same in a way that still allows the plot to move forward as opposed to have backstory pulling us backwards? Absolutely. So, of course, first of all, it's just trial and error to make sure that your backstory is reading as in scene as possible. So even though you might be going back in time, you need to have those scenes and dialogue playing out as if it's happening then for those characters. A little trick is just to not use a past participle as much as you can. So not saying she had done this or she had done this. And I, I think a lot of that is just a turn of phrase or saying she always loved doing this when her mother did this instead of saying had, had, had repeatedly. I think that that makes a big difference. Another thing that I think writers should remember is that when you give a lot of action in your first chapter and a lot of characters, I do think that people are ready to calm down a little bit and sit back and not remember a million characters' names again. And they have a little bit more patience in that second chapter for, for some backstory. Do I think I'll always do that in everything I write? No, but I do think it's a nice entry point into backstory. You've just ruined my whole Kylie Reed signature move now. If you're not going to keep <laughs> doing that, Kylie, damn it. Could you please just incorporate that in the next novel right. so that we can keep calling it that? <laughs> That'll be super helpful. Last question before we run out of time is, when it comes to quiet novels, where there doesn't appear to be a lot actually happening on the page in terms of plot, you know, we, we say to listeners again, be careful that it's perhaps too quiet because agents are nervous of quiet books, editors are nervous of quiet books. This is a novel that starts off pretty quiet if you aren't paying a lot of attention because there doesn't seem to be a lot happening on the page, but it's what's not happening that you've really got to pay attention to. It's the what's not being said. It's the undercurrents. It's those tensions that you need to focus on. And then the book gets really, really loud. Like then it's like, 
booyah, everything's out and it's can of worms, man. So can you talk a bit about writing that kind of novel with simmering underlying tensions that feel kind of quiet but have a lot of social commentary and do make the reader kind of squirm with discomfort a lot of the time? Sure. I think it's important to always write to your best reader. And that's not going to be everyone. So if someone was the kind of person like for this novel who was like, oh, I hate gossip. It makes me feel really uncomfortable. That's none of my business. They're probably not my reader. <laughs> that's, that's perfectly okay. And so I just have to, you have to remain true to what your obsession is and what your pension is for this novel and set up those themes as best you can. I do think in terms of having a louder novel, what's more important to me than having big, huge like action scenes is events that are important in the plot for that character. So there's events with Kennedy's roommate, Peyton, getting really frustrated with her about not putting dishes away. And so for anyone else, they think, oh, that's not a big deal. It's just dishes. But for Kennedy, this is like going to cause her a huge breakdown. And so more important than having big action scenes that everyone can agree on, it's what's the biggest thing happening in your character's life. And if it means the world to them, just find a way to make it mean the world to your reader as well. Yeah. Can I just say those scenes between Peyton and Kennedy, I felt like I was sitting in the dorm with them. You know, when you're in those moments that are super awkward and you can see something is going to escalate badly and you could just see that these two people are not communicating and that it's going to explode at some point. And all of the scenes with them, I was sitting biting my nails going, oh God, this is not going to end well. And, you know, you can see both of their sides. You can see Peyton's side, you can see Kennedy's side, but you can kind of see that it's going to escalate. So that down the line, there's that wonderful payoff and all that tension we've had sitting there biting our nails going, oh God, I can't look. It, it pays off so, so well. So for our listeners who are doing that kind of thing who are writing those kinds of stories with those kinds of tensions you have to have to have to read come and get it i love the ampersand can we quickly talk about that before we go because everyone line it says come and get it and and is written out but on the cover it's an ampersand so can we just quickly chat about that oh my gosh there were so many conversations about the ampersand <laughs> i really love the font and i mean i just immediately it was one of those things when you see you say i have to have that immediately I think that we wanted a big classic book feel on the cover and this little piggy coming across was one of the first ones that we saw as well. I think that they complement each other really well. And honestly, any chance I have to do an ampersand, I'm probably going to take that chance. Yeah, we had the same conversation with Lily King when it came to writers and lovers, why the ampersand there as well. And you guys all know we, we're story nerds and word nerds when we can sit and geek out over an ampersand for for any period of time. Kylie, thank you so much for joining us. I have a huge long list of questions that we didn't get to, but this was a wonderful conversation. We are linking to this on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Get the book there. You support an independent bookstore and the podcast at the same time. Kylie, we hope to have you back next time. Thank you so much, Miak. It's a pleasure. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. 
Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is CC. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.